Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm Liam Bailey. I'm Head of Research at Knight Frank. And today I'm joined by Flora Harley, a partner in our residential research team who leads on all things relating to the economy. Hello, Flora. Hi, Liam. Great to be here today. And also our special guest, Andrew Wishart, Senior Property Economist from Capital Economics. Hi, Liam. Great to be here. In our last episode, I was joined by Tom Bill and Kate Everett-Allen, who took a look at the world's housing markets, and they were very keen to stress the risks which were building for major markets, but also the underlying strengths which were likely to support market demand and even pricing in the residential market. Now, today we're going to focus on the UK, and it's very fair to say the past week has seen those risks build a little bit further. So I want to pick up where we left off with Tom and Kate. And there are a lot of related themes. So I want to start by trying to tease them apart. And hopefully, Flora, you're going to help me do this. Inflation, Flora. Let's ignore the last week in the UK for a moment. And let's just take a step back. Is it fair to say that we have reached or are reaching peak inflation globally? So in the US, in Europe, etc.? Well, I think it's important to understand some of the underlying causes of inflation. It's been that supply-demand imbalance. We've seen supply chains strained throughout the pandemic and all the disruptions that have followed. We've seen demand had surged on the back of that. And then the third piece of that is really the energy prices. So looking at the imbalance, well, global PMIs are showing that there is a much more easing in the supply chain, and hopefully this will only continue to open up. Only in the last week, we've seen Hong Kong take steps to open up their economy further, for example. And with interest rate rises, we're seeing demand start to be tempered. So the balance and the imbalance is starting to correct itself. Added to which, we're seeing oil prices are now below $80 when I looked just earlier today from a high of 120 So that is alleviating some pressure. Then across the board, um, we've got the energy cap in the UK, which will particularly bring down the UK inflation rate by three to four percentage points is what many forecasters, including Capital Economics, are saying. So there are some positives that show potentially we have seen that start to peak and fall down. We've seen producer price inflation start to ease when you look in most measures, particularly sort of Germany, apart from in the sector of energy, which as we've spoken about already. But then on the other side, with if we see any further geopolitical tensions flare or supply chain disruptions that we haven't already seen, then this could be much more inflationary going forward. Okay, brilliant. Did last week's mini budget do something which means that the UK might now have a worse inflation experience than it otherwise would have done? Well, again, there's a lot of opposing factors here. The energy price cap, as I've mentioned, has reduced inflationary pressures over the coming months, as we won't see energy price bills go up quite as substantially as initially pegged. But there has been a lot of demand side policies, you know, the tax cuts, the reverse of the national insurance increase. All of these will help to spur on demand and increase consumption or keep consumption at a higher level, which could be inflationary from keeping demand at elevated levels. But on the flip side, we'll see the Bank of England raise rates higher, which will start to stretch budgets on the other side. So it depends which side is going to win out the better and healthier budgets, uh, household balance sheets from the lower taxes versus the stretching on affordability from interest rate rises. Okay, Andrew, let's move to you now. So capital economics, I hope I'm correct. I think uh, you came out with a base rate forecast on the 15th of September, so not even two weeks ago. And at that point, you were saying 4% peak in the UK base rate. I'm assuming that actually at the moment that may seem low. Are you looking at revising those figures at the moment? 
Yeah, so we've um, on the back of the budget on Friday, we've already revised that up to a peak of um, 5%. Yeah, we think that the main impact of that fiscal event is going to be a boost to demand that means that that adds to those medium-term inflationary pressures that the Bank of England's concerned about. And ultimately, yes, that it will have to to raise interest rates further than than the fiscal policy wasn't loosened. And if we just follow that through, I mean, Flora, base rate forecasts are moving higher and higher. And and, and to be fair, everyone's been spending a year kind of trying to keep up really with with, with events. Flora, from your perspective, do you you see a level that base rates don't go beyond? Do you think 6%, 7% would be impossible to envisage? I mean, I don't think it's impossible. We've seen it in previous history back in the sort of 70s, 80s, when we saw inflation at a high and sustained levels, we saw the Bank of England committed. And what we've seen coming out of the Jackson Hole Central Bankers meeting just a few weeks ago was that there is a commitment to very much to taming inflation because they want to stop the second round effects. They want to stop it spiralling. So I think they're going to be forced to act quite aggressively to sort of quell that and they may end up front loading some of it. The markets are currently looking at potentially as high as 6%, which is quite phenomenal given the fact that we hadn't seen it above 1% in since 2008. So it's going to be a big shift in sort of mentality and sort of that normalization. I don't think there's an upper end, but I, I feel as if the bank will take pause for reflection and to allow some of these effects to feed through to the economy before going ever higher than markets currently anticipate. So let's stick with 5% for the moment for the UK base rate. There are obviously lots of challenges and there are lots of reasons to look at risks in the market, but there have been a number of positives that you've talked about in your notes over the last few months and even the last year, which are kind of supports for the housing market. So can we sort of just just take those in turn? One thing that became a sort of feature of the the UK housing market over the last couple of years was this kind of concept of excess savings, kind of pandemic savings by households. How do you see that sort of influencing the market at the moment? Yeah, I think that that boost has run its course, to be honest with you. I think, you know, household savings are no longer rising. So I think, you know, we have had a one-off increase in deposit size. You know, I think that's now been sort of capitalised into house prices and doesn't really have any further to run. So I think, yeah, that certainly was a support over the pandemic period alongside low mortgage rates and that um, kind of reassessment of housing need and perhaps how much people are willing to spend on put towards sort of uh, a mortgage and housing costs generally. But I think looking ahead, to be honest, yeah, that boost from deposits, I think it, I think deposits will stay larger given households still have a large amount of cash in their savings accounts. But the biggest factor really is going to be rising mortgage rates and, and also the impact of higher mortgage rates on the size of mortgages that buyers can take out. And just, uh, again, another factor which has been a positive for the market is is obviously the strong labour market over the past two years. And again, you know, we've got record lows in, in terms of uh, unemployment at the moment. Do you see that still being a significant support for the market? I think it is a significant support in that it should, you know, ultimately dramatic changes in income from becoming unemployed are the biggest factor that, that leads into arrears and repossessions. Having said that, we've got an unprecedented tightening cycle on, on our hands and at the same time as uh, other pressures in the cost of living. So it's it's difficult to know exactly how much support the labour market will give in terms of preventing mortgage arrears and repossessions. But certainly that is a benefit. One thing that we've been saying in our research, which I think is interesting, is thinking about how the housing market feeds back into the Bank of England's policymaking decisions. Ultimately, you know, we're raising rates to try and cool the economy, offset that fiscal stimulus and loosen the labour market and, and, and prevent wage pressures continuing to build. 
And if you think about what a mortgage rate of 6% would do the house, to the housing market, it is extremely, I think, extremely damaging, to be honest. And I think that's a good reason to think that the Bank of England will actually stop raising rates before we get to the level that's priced into markets now. In fact, historically, the Bank of England has never continued to raise interest rates after house prices have started to fall. So I think the idea that interest rates will continue to rise all the way through to next summer when the housing market, look, it looks like from leading indicators, like prices will probably be falling by the end of the year, uh, suggests to me that we probably won't get as, as far as investors currently expect in terms of hikes in bank rate that certainly are going to come over the next few months. But I think into next year, it's hard to see them continuing to hike if the housing market is clearly showing signs of the impact of that tightening on, on the housing market. So let's just look at that a second. So you're, you're saying that you're expecting prices on, say, a monthly basis to begin falling by the end of this year. Yeah, that's right. Um, the RIC survey of uh, surveyors showed new buyer inquiries fall to their lowest level since 2008 in the latest reading, which I think is for August. And although there is this argument that supply coming to the market is extremely limited, obviously, we've heard a lot of that over the past few years. Ultimately, when you look at how quickly new buyer demand is now falling, I think that is going to be enough. If you compare the two to get that kind of demand supply balance in the market, it looks like prices will be falling on a quarterly basis by the end of the year. And I think if you look at the difference between quoted mortgage rates, so mortgage rates on the market now and those on mortgages that are being advanced, you know, there's already a big rise in mortgage rates. And I think because lenders are are responding right now to the increase in in interest rates priced into the into the market, mortgage rates are only going to continue to rise quickly. And I think, you know, with two thirds of buyers buying the mortgage, that's going to mean that that buyer inquiries balance is only going to deteriorate over the next few months. And in terms of levels of price falls, I mean, I know there's lots of moving parts, but in terms of where you see prices in, say, 18 months, two years time, what do you think the kind of peak to trough falls could be? Yeah, so at the moment, we've got a 7% peak to trough fall in prices in our forecast. That's based on a rise in you know, affordability, getting back to a point which is sustainable after this sort of rise in mortgage rates we've got. Now, it actually doesn't really sound like a very big fall in some sense, that like we had about 20% in the financial crisis. And this rise in mortgage rates we're predicting is going to stretch the cost of a mortgage as a share of income to a similar, if not worse, level. So the flip side is that that we've actually got quite strong wage growth now compared to the financial crisis. So in some ways, as well as prices falling a bit, wages are going to be catching up, helping that affordability picture improve. And of course, the other thing is that we think that the banking sector is better capitalised and and will be able to support the, the market through lending more than obviously in the financial crisis. And just moving away from prices, transactions are uh, obviously the other sort of side of the coin, really. But your forecasts, I think, are transactions falling next year and maybe the year after as well? Yes. So um, we have transactions falling back to 1 million in 2023 and 2024 from about, I think, one point, just over 1.4 million this year. And that's basically based on if you plot house price growth against transactions, there's a good relationship. I suppose that probably reflects the fact that, you know, unless you need to move for some reason, if prices fall, you, you'd probably be unwilling to sell at a lower price than, you know, your house is valued at, for at one point. So, um, yeah, we're expecting transactions to fall back as well. And that would actually be the lowest level of transactions in a year since 2012. In terms of different markets in the UK, which region or which location do you think is, is, is most exposed to potential price falls? So, yeah, all our forecasts are, are driven predominantly by the deterioration in affordability because of higher mortgage rates. 
And that is going to be worse in London. You know, London already has obviously highest house price to earnings ratio and the highest cost of servicing a mortgage compared to its long run average. And that's where this, you know, affordability deterioration as mortgage rates go up will hit hardest. So in London, we do have a 12% fall in prices. And then the other end of the spectrum, we've got places with where house price valuations are less stretched and will continue probably to benefit from the opportunity that greater working from home gives for long commutes. So places like, I think, Wales and the north potentially could see much smaller falls, perhaps even just flatline. Is there, is there a counter to that, that actually, I mean, in terms of demand and supply imbalance, that London is the location which suffers most from kind of an excess of demand versus available supply, and actually that, that could help support pricing through this next phase? Potentially, I think, personally, I think, just think the demand side of this is way bigger over the medium term. I think you're right that, yes, I think structurally there is, you know, a real demand supply mismatch in London, which explains why it has much higher house price to earnings ratios than other regions. But talking about what's going to happen over the next three years, I think the affordability is going to be the main driver. And, you know, I'm not saying that the, the premium of London house prices over other regions is going to be completely eradicated far from it, but I think it will narrow. Flora, let's just think about the central London market. It's a market which has got a significant international dimension to it. And therefore, actually, the performance of the pound is a, is a big part of the story. Do you see the weak pound at the moment leading to more demand from overseas buyers in the central London market? There's definitely an element at it. When you look at the statistics of what's happened to the pound, even in this year, it's down around 20%. When you add that to the price fall since around 2014, in some areas of London, the, the effective discount for prices and currency is around 50%. So that's a, a huge a sort of offering and opportunity of some of those buyers. And we, we've started to see it with some of our, our agents have said, people who had previously moved abroad and back to the US are now thinking, coming back to London because the opportunity is there, the education is there, and still a lot of those draws are bringing in the demand to the capital. And now there's just a a window of opportunity for them to act while the currency is at such a low level. Whether that materially bounces back, well, that remains to be seen. And um, the fundamentals are there for the economy and they're laying, if the gamble pays off, we could see a lot of growth and then the currency would pick up, but it's all quite volatile at the moment. Final question, Andrew. Um, We can sometimes be accused of of overly fixating on prices and transactions, but there are lots of different views on the market. For example, tenants, renting property and first-time buyers. What does the current situation mean for people who don't yet own property but are thinking of uh, potentially coming into the market at some point? Well, I guess the first thing is that wage growth is very strong at the moment. So that's going to continue to to drive strong rental growth, we think. And the other interesting thing is that typically when we have house price corrections, and uh, that actually tends to support rents because it means that those people that might be first time buyers perhaps hold off either because they're worried about house price falls or because mortgage rates are rising. So that can actually support rental demand. So the outlook for rents, we think, is potentially actually quite strong. Initially, I'm not sure that typically house price corrections don't tend to lead to a big increase in first-time buyer numbers to start with because credit conditions are tightened. But I think further ahead, particularly if mortgage rates don't come all the way back down to the levels below 2% we saw previously, that could help in parts of the country where the deposit is the biggest barrier to home ownership because it will ultimately mean because people can't get bigger mortgages, house prices relative to income are a little bit lower. And that makes perhaps saving that deposit of 10% of the house price a bit easier. So Potentially, a slightly higher rate environment 
could actually help first-time buyers overcome that deposit barrier in the sort of longer term. But I think over the next two or three years, the likelihood is we will see first-time buyer numbers drop because of a tightening in credit conditions in, in response to house price falls. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, listen, that's been hugely informative. Thank you to Andrew for joining today. Thanks, Liam. And also thank you to Flora. Thanks, Liam. And it just leaves me uh, time to remind all of our listeners that for more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note that goes out each Monday, Wednesday and Friday, or any one of our dedicated sector-focused newsletters and see our show notes for more details. And please subscribe to Intelligence Talks wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for listening to this week's episode.